The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, a right old ding-dong at the BBC over Baroness Thatcher and that song from The Wizard of Oz. Plus, we talk to Mike Souter, the man behind Shortlist and Stylist magazines on his new digital venture, Never Underdressed. And it's trebles all round as Mad Men's back. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of Digital Content Company Something Else, and by Mike Souter, former IPC Creative Director, the man who turned FHM into a publishing blockbuster and the founder and chief executive of Shortlist Media. And Mike, your, your new title's Never Underdressed, so a quick word on what, uh, what we're all wearing today for uh, listeners. Uh, I'd, I'd say almost overdressed today. I mean, um, I think we're wearing the traditional media pundit outfit here, the, the open neck shirt, the lovely jumper, in two cases at least. Classic uh, V-neck. The, yeah, absolutely, and uh, the jeans, and uh, a mix between comfy shoes and overly smart shoes. It's a great look. Uh, well, where else to begin but with Ding Dong? Who'd have thought the first big test for new BBC Director General Tony Hall would be a song from The Wizard of Oz? The media, nothing if not unpredictable. An anti-Thatcher Facebook campaign in the wake of Baroness Thatcher's death last week has propelled Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, into the top ten. And who knows, with all this publicity, it might even make number one. But should the BBC play it in the Sunday afternoon chart show on Radio 1? That's the big question this week, chaps. Um, Steve, let's start with you. Well, let's not get away from the fact that whatever your politics... This has a little bit of uh, of a distasteful feel to it. However, that's not the same debate as whether the BBC should be censoring, in effect, you know, the musical selections of the nation. The chart shows a rundown of the biggest selling songs of the week. And because of the download culture we now have, we have the ability for songs to zip into the chart very quickly uh, on the back of campaigns or on the back of, um, uh, you know, many people buying at, at the same time. Personally, I th- I think it should be played, and I think the days are gone where the BBC had that sort of that approach where they would make decisions on on behalf of the public as to what was in good taste or not. So I don't want to sound like Britain's Got Talent, but that's a yes from Steve. Uh, <laughs> Mike, over to you. I mean, I guess the BBC's position has changed enormously over time. Uh, you know, 30-odd years ago when it was censoring things like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, it was because it was a, it was a Guardian. It was one of the only conduits for for kind of popular culture in the country and therefore it had huge influence and so whether it was going to play something was going to have an impact on kind of the rest of society well things have changed enormously digital media has changed things enormously so whether Radio 1 play it on the chart show or even within their normal playlist is now frankly irrelevant Okay, but what we really want to hear from is uh, maybe a chap who used to be in charge of music policy at Radio 1, for instance. Well, what about a chap called, well, Trevor Dan? Mr Trevor Dan, how are you? I'm well, John, how are you? Uh, remind me, what was your job at Radio 1? and When did oh, you I reign? I was called Head of Production. Head of Production. Uh, I ran the playlist for a few years. Well, you are ideally suited then to tell us about uh, whether the BBC should go ahead and play Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. What's your take? Well, of course they should, because it's not the BBC's chart, it's the official chart. And the BBC reports it in the same way that it reports the FT index or the football results. Uh, it's not the same as the issue of should it, the record be played in the Ken Brew show or a Grimmy at breakfast. Um, it, it is the, the chart of record, if you'll forgive the pun. It's the chart of download. If the public who pay the licence fee have in some small number decided that this is a record that should be in the charts, then the BBC should respect the public's views. 
for the, for the dilemma for the BBC is if they go ahead and play it, then they're going to instantly, in the, in the course of a three-minute song, you know, offend several thousand, several hundred thousand, several million, if you if you uh, if you believe the Daily Mail, you know. Um, well, I people don't with believe the Daily Mail. Mail. I, I don't believe the, the Daily Telegraph. In fact, I find myself curiously for the first time in my life saying I agree with Nigel Farage, who's reported not the saying, first time, surely, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> well, on. he says, uh, and I, I agree with him that. If the BBC were to, quote, ban it, or at least not play it in their chart, then they would be giving it what Mrs. Thatcher herself might have called the oxygen of publicity. And, uh, you know, Farage says they should just, you know, play it, and then it will be rapidly forgotten. And I think he's probably right. Steve, Trevor mentioned that the Daily Mail and their, their front page splash on Friday is a BBC witch song insult to Maggie. Uh, talks about a campaign by left-wing agitators has caused the song to be number four in the, in the midweek charts. Is there um, any case for putting principle to one side and just um, accepting the practicalities of it and maybe just um, you know brushing it to one side? I mean, it's, it's meat and drink to the corporation's critics, isn't it? It's red rag to a ball for the, for the mail and the telegraph. I think one thing that's slightly being overlooked and, and kind of reflects the, the readership of those papers is the fact that, that the chart show itself does not have the pull and influence that it once did in terms of its audience numbers. Actually, for, for the vast majority of music buyers, the chart show is irrelevant. It, it's not listened to. And therefore, the idea that because it's played on the chart show, it's suddenly going to get this huge amount of extra attention or, the, or that it's a sign of the BBC supporting it, it you know, just becomes fatuous. And Mike, what did you make this, of this idea that they'll um, perhaps have a newsbeat reporter who, who will break into the chart show to explain to younger listeners who didn't know who Margaret Thatcher was uh, the, the context of the song and, what, and why people are buying it? Is that, is that helping or, or, or not? I, I love this idea. It's like, it's like one of those uh, messages that appears after EastEnders that says, if you've been affected by any of the issues covered in this programme, then do ring this helpline. <laughs> um, no... They should play the song. It's 59 seconds long. I mean, if they want to play it three times, you know, just to make the point that normally they play things that are three minutes long, then, you know, maybe that might cause some fuss. But no, I think they should not read into people's motives, even though it's entirely clear why this record... It's not in there for its kind of, you know, musical efficacy. It's there because people want to make a point, but they should play it, and then they should move on, and they should play something that's kind of decent. There's actually loads of really brilliant music out there at the moment, so you should play it and move on. All right, one-word answers from you all, then. We all think the BBC... Well, certainly you all think the BBC should play it, but will they play it? Uh, Yes, no answers. Uh, uh, First, you, funny man, uh, Dan. Yeah, yes. They will play it. Steve? Yes. And Mike? Oh, yes. All right, great. Well, we'll return to this next week. All right, Trevor Dan, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Right, it's time to talk Underdressed, which is a digital fashion and beauty title for women, it says here, which will be available on smartphones and tablet computers. It comes from uh, Mike Suter's shortlist company. It will be free, and it will be edited by the former digital editor of Elle, Carrie Tyler. Mike, you've had uh, big uh, success with the, the sort of freemium titles, as they've become to be known, shortlist and stylist. Thank you. Uh, but tell us about this new title. Uh, well, I guess probably about a year and a half ago, we started to look at the way that fashion was changing and the way that women were consuming fashion and how that was changing. And we saw a couple of really major trends going on. One was that um, high-end fashion shopping sites, the likes of Net-A-Porter, ASOS at its, at its kind of high-end, had created this whole new um, form of entertainment, kind of unintentionally, uh, which was a, a kind of a form of digital window shopping. And it was starting to take up lots and lots of time. At the same time, we also noticed that existing digital fashion brands tended to be 
kind of side projects from big glossy magazines and we sat down and and spoke to the kind of core female consumers of of all of these services and what we realized was there was a fantastic opportunity to marry these two things to create something which had all of that incredible immediacy of the web with um, the wit of a, a really beautifully edited magazine and the in- incredible gloss of, you know, beautiful full-screen pictures, the like of which aren't really available online, the like of which are, tend to be held behind, I suppose, the, the paywall that is a, a, a glossy monthly magazine. I think it's probably the best-resourced digital media launch that's that's come from a, a, a publisher background ever. I mean, we have 14 full-time journalists on it. It's great news for journalism. So what kind of resources are you putting into it? Can you put a number on it for us? Millions of pounds worth of right. resources. Uh, that's what I've told our investors. Um, and uh, and thankfully they have, as they have done over the last six years, um, they're backing us to the hilt um, again on this one. I mean, we're in, a, we're in a, a good position, nothing to be complacent about. Our core business is trading really well. We're a profitable business and it means that we can reinvest the profits into growth. And this is going to be, as you say, an online-only launch. How difficult is it, or is it in fact impossible to do those kind of multi-million-pound print launches that we saw with, you know, Grazia and Heat, and of years gone by that cost, you know, six, seven, eight, ten million pounds? Yeah. Are they gone for good? It's difficult to see the return of those because the economics of those are that you spend ten to twelve million pounds marketing on television. Um, it's very difficult to recoup that. Uh, the newsstand, the paid-for newsstand, is a very congested place. The retail supply chain is sclerotic. It's it's very wasteful. Um, you know, 40%, I think, on average, of all magazines that go onto the newsstand get pulped. Um, we have a business model where about 2% do because we have a really high control over the distribution of those. Um, uh, so the economics of this, you know, the, the, the you know, newsstand revenues are either flat or in decline. Volumes are flat or in decline right the way across the market. I think it's very difficult to build a business case that says I'm going to launch a paid-for magazine and it's going to lose £8 million in the first year, it's going to lose £4 million in the second year, it's going to lose a million in the... Th- you know, By this point, you're up at £15 million before you start to break even. It takes a long time for a magazine to, to pay that sort of sum back. Steve, what have you made, what have you made of the, the freemium phenomenon? We've had shortlist, we've had stylist, but Time Out is now free, of course, in London. The Evening Standard, of course, has been a huge success. Well, it's obviously a, a classic reflection of what's going on across the media in terms of the, the creation of new business models and the uh, adaption to to different platforms. I mean, I think, I think it's fascinating what Mike's doing. And actually, I wanted to ask you, um, how much of what you're doing is a, is a reflection in particular of the, of, of the rise and penetration of uh, tablet sales? And also, how much do you think is it a sign or, a, or sort of is it a reaction to the slowness of, tradition, of the traditional magazine titles to adapt to the, to the changing ecology? I mean, I think mobile technology in its very many forms and tablets are a really core part of that when it comes to media consumption. I think are driving the, the the plans and the thoughts of most media companies now. Certainly, most most media companies that fancy themselves as, as print to start off with, it gives you fantastic opportunities. What there isn't yet, but it will emerge, are sustainable business models on there that aren't app 
based. Uh, there are people that can see how you can make money from apps because people tend to pay to download those or, the, or there will be some way in which you can lure people into paying for, for more premium services on it. In terms of media, there isn't a spot market there, there isn't a display ad market there yet in the way that there is in print, but that will develop as the audience sizes get bigger. As the interactivity and richness of these platforms increases, as, as, as media owners invest more money into creating more rounded content, more compelling content that will appear on there, those advertising models will develop. And Mike, quick word finally on Sylvia Orton's departure from IPC. Uh, where you used to work, of course, and you know, d- difficult times for IPC with the changes going on at, at time. Timing. Uh, you know, I think I, I think on on one hand, this is the you know the the kind of the passing of the baton on from somebody who is an absolute legendary industry figure. You know, she has controlled IPC incredibly closely and tightly. And having worked with her, uh, having uh, she was my chief executive for three years, she's a, f- a phenomenal has phenomenal control of detail she's really controlled that business you know single-handedly for the last 10 years so there'll be big changes there and I think on top of the uncertainty caused by you know its ownership structure and where that's going to go because nobody knows nobody's actually said I think it could lead to several months if not longer of IPC just kind of sitting becalmed Within a marketplace that is evolving and moving incredibly quickly, there has to be a bit of concern about that. So a big opportunity for its rivals, not least Bauer, I guess. I would, yeah, I, I, absolutely, I would say so. I think there's, you know, IPC is the second largest consumer magazine publisher. Bauer is now the, the, the biggest. I think there are fantastic opportunities for Bauer, and I think actually, you know, smaller companies as well, to profit while IPC works out what it's going to do. Uh, Mike, how many how many final questions can a man have? But uh, one more final question: uh, Andrew Harrison leaving Q after only a, a year in charge. This is no, breaking news. Breaking news! What happened to the ticker there? I missed that. Oh, okay, well that does that that comes as uh, actually something of a surprise because I think Andrew went in there as somebody who could who understood the DNA of Q. You know, Q is in a in a difficult position in its marketplace, and I think everybody had you know Andrew down as not just a safe pair of hands, but somebody who could reconnect Q with its with the f- kind of very rich heritage that it has. So the fact that he's moving on, I think, can't be terribly good news for that brand. And finally, in this section, it's time to talk awards, uh, of which I'm sure. Well, hang on, uh, yeah, Mike's got lots of awards. Steve's got lots of awards, and this podcast won a, a Sony Silver before I presented it. So uh, yes, I remember that. Yeah. So I think we're all uh, we're all in the same boat there. Uh, it's time to talk Sony's and Baftas. Uh, let's talk Sony's first, uh, Steve. And the Asian Network out for Station of the Year. So uh, another station like Six Music back from the dead, getting lots of plaudits. Well, it's it's always uh, it always amuses me that uh, once the nominations get revealed, stories get threaded in, you know, get read into the nominations like this. Oh, well, the judges have obviously chosen it because it was, it was under threat. And it, I've got to say, of, um, of all the awards I, I, that I sort of come across, the Sonys are, are full of integrity in terms of the way the judging panels work and the way each panel is individual from, from any other and that the judges are different every year. So I, thought, I wasn't suggesting Skullduggery. It's just a, it's, it's a triumph for the Asian Network. Yeah, One yeah. in the eye for the BBC. Well, you know, I mean... It's good news for the Asian Network. I think overall, when you look across the the sort of range of nominations, again, a a slightly probably disappointing year for commercial radio and in particular global radio. 
But, um, you know, it's always good to see a smaller station like the Asian Network getting some prominence. Disappointing because they weren't recognised or disappointing because they got to up their game or both? Well, both. I, I mean, certainly for, for global radio, when you look at, I mean, they've created this, this new category this year, Brand of the Year, which was there really, I think, to reflect some of the stations who may not necessarily be uh, heavy on content, but, but are creating brands through their playlisting and, and, um, and some, some of the things they're trying to do. And when, when you look on that list, you know, I would have thought when that category was being discussed, uh, the guys in Leicester Square uh, would have been thinking about capital and heart as being front contenders for that and yet obviously they're nowhere on that list Mike what did you make of them no Radio 2 you know 16 million listeners but not out there for station of the year but three nominations for Christian O'Connell a couple for Lauren Laverne two for Danny Baker so a couple for Kiss as well which um, as a station I uh, have history with um, I was delighted to see actually um, I, I, you know the, the funny thing about the Sony Radio Awards you know having printed out the uh, nominations list it runs to nine pages it, it kind of I wondered if that was a list of everybody who works in radio these days there are so <laughs> many people and I haven't been along to the Sony Awards for probably about 10 years but I this must take days I mean, it's a it's a weekend event now. It's a um, long old awards. Yeah, yeah. It's what, four hours, Steve, five hours. Well, that's that's why everyone, you know, everyone everyone doesn't quite remember the last hour, do they? Cause <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have a good night. Uh, but there's no newcomer award this year. Axed uh, only partly because I think uh, somebody works for you, Steve. Robbie Savage last year offered a car. To oh, anyone no, well, who no, voted no, for him, no, and, no. and now they've got rid of it partly that, because of that. Well, that's not quite true because because that was actually two two years ago. Two years ago. But that, no, what they've done is they've replaced it with an award. They're asking that they're saying anyone who's on air can put their name forward, can register, and then they're asking the public to vote John Plunkett to vote. So Plunkett could be in there if the uh, if the hundreds of listeners to the uh, podcast could vote. That would be brilliant. Hundreds. Nobody said there were hundreds. I think that's <laughs> ten. Surely. I think that's a while. This is taking the wrong turn. Hello, like both a, of you. Everyone loves the underdog. And that's also a wild underestimation. And thanks for listening, Dad. Uh, also, this uh, also announced this week were the uh, the BAFTA, the BAFTA Television Awards, uh, formerly known about ten years ago, I think, as the NAFTAs, but they're a bit more a bit more mainstream now. Plenty of gongs for shows like he says, Google, Google, Google. Uh, no, but I tell you what, there was no recognition uh, for Downton Abbey. Uh, only one award, only one nomination for Call the Midwife. <clears throat> Nothing for Doctor Who. Is this a sign, Steve, that they're sort of slipping back into NAFTA territory? Because they were bit, oh. Well, when when you look at the list of nominations, I always find the TV nominations are a bit more formulaic. You can normally predict, you know, before the nominations come out, which shows are going to be there. You're going to have some of the big popular shows. You're going to have some of the reality shows, the Made in Chelsea's, that that sort of stuff. I mean, Downton Abbey. Let's not forget the the most recent series actually was was felt not not to have been as strong as the as the previous series. So maybe it's a it's a reflection of that. I always find it slightly bizarre as well. Some of the categories in terms of things like um, uh, you know the sports coverage and and live event coverage. You think, well, is this an award for something that was dramatic or for good TV? craft because uh putting in a nomination for super saturday in terms of the olympics you think well well, the drama came from the uh from the athletes and the sport and the event what was it that that tv was contributing apart from being the conduit to deliver into people's homes is that really worthy of of an award i'm not quite sure it is mike what, what did you make of them I really like the comedy uh, awards, I have to say. Go on, tell um, us, tell us uh, the nominees. Uh, so Sitcom, uh, which I think was described as the group of death, wasn't it? <laughs> that's, um, that's right, uh, by has, Stephen Mangan. Has episodes in it, which is just brilliant and should win every award going in every awards. 
versus Hunderby, which was fantastic, versus The Thick of It, which, oh, God, that should win every award going in, every television awards, versus 2012, which should ah, win every award going. I mean, I think we just have to reflect that there's extraordinary original comedy being made, and um, whilst I personally am very sad uh, about the lack of uh, Downton Abbey uh, recognition uh, this year, I think I'll probably console myself with that. Well, good luck to all the nominees, and my thanks to Mr Mike Souter and Steve Ackerman. This week on the Guardian Audio Edition, Martin White is a product of British welfare, not McPhilpot. Film star Eva Mendes, I don't care about looking beautiful. And in this week's audio book review, we're investigating mysteries for younger listeners, with Anne Cassidy's latest, Killing Rachel. To subscribe for free, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. Time to move on now and I am joined by uh, Mr Matt Deegan, who is creative director of Folder Media, which is among many other things, Matt, uh, home of Fun Kids Digital Radio. It is, yes. Celebrating a Sony nomination, I understand. It's always nice to get a nod. Very strange. So in the past, there used to be a Digital Radio Station of the Year category, uh, whereas that's kind of disappeared over the last couple of years. So we're in with the kind of normal big boys. And so Fun in an odd place, we're a small radio station that broadcasts to quite a large area. Uh, so uh, we're up against uh, Metro FM and uh, BBC Radio Newcastle. Um, so it's kids versus uh, Newcastle for the uh, for the title for the heavyweight championship of the world. What a face off! Yes. Well, b- very best of luck. Thank you. And we should mention we didn't, but the Steve Ackerman something else uh, was is also nominated, nominated for three Sony's I think this time round, uh, including um, uh, the Ronnie Wood Show on Absolute Radio, a perennial winner. Yes, always always does well. A uh, great talent um, that's evolved into a really great show. Also, he's interesting, um, kind of a bit more BBC heavy than normal this year, but some broad nominees for different categories, and it's, it's nice to see a real mixed bag uh, nominated. I was just looking at the the, the smaller breakfast shows, so this is breakfast shows uh, under 10 million, and as well as kind of BBC Radio Berkshire and Tease, some really good talent like Tim Cocker at XFM in Manchester uh, and Sam and Amy at Gem 106. So the good thing about the Sony is it does... Uh, reflect excellence. It's not about just doing a great job. It's about creating something really new and, and scanning through the nominees. I think they've they've picked some good ones this year. Okay, fantastic. Well, it's time to talk tech. And uh, I'm not going to take offence uh, that you're looking at your phone because uh, that's entirely relevant to what we're about to speak about. Uh, and something very exciting called um, Hyperlapse, yeah. which I'd only found out about about 10 seconds ago, but now I, I just can't wait to go back on it. <laughs> so it's interesting. So uh, a company have uh, taken the visuals that you see in Street View, uh, so seeing all those pictures of uh, the office that you need to get to and try and work out where that house is, uh, and they've created a kind of road movie style video. So um, they, they've demoed it and they've shown a lovely kind of American uh, road zooms through an out-of-town area. But you can go onto their website and you can select two bits uh, of London or wherever uh, and create your own street view and your own little movies. So I had a look at one uh, sweeping past our palatial offices in Curtain Road. Not quite the same American feel, uh, (laughs) but kind of quite interesting. And I think there's something about using other people's technology. So um, mashups was a big thing a couple of years ago. But as technology develops and evolves, people are finding new ways to use this stuff. Animates your journey from from A to B using using Street View picks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and can you change the speed? Can you make it go slow and fast? Uh, so the, and put the, your own music to it. The speed's fixed, but I think you can kind of spin around where it's looking at. 
when you have a look at your movie, it's in it's in 3D. So if you want to kind of zoom around a bit more, uh, you can do that uh, and see exactly what you want as you as you spin spin by. But I think it's interesting. It's a first go at something. Maybe it becomes a, a bigger web app, and you can add on your music and all that other stuff. Maybe that comes later. Could you tie in Skype as well? So when you get to the end of your journey, your in-laws magically appear or ma- on screen, and or, so I haven't got to go to Panath anymore. Or, or maybe instead, it just flashes. It just flashes up. Uh, uh, there's no a TFL just flashes up saying you can't get to actually where you want to go. Right. Maybe <laughs> right. Yes. Saves a lot of bother. Yes. Uh, right, Matt. Um, what's next up? He says. Uh, I think uh, I, I have an urge to talk about Mighty Text. Yeah. So uh, I just stumbled across this the other day. I was feeling incredibly lazy. I, I was at home uh, in my bedroom and my phone was in the other room and I could hear my phone going off with texts. And I was thinking I could get up out of bed and, and look at text, but I have got my iPad next to me. If only there was a way that I could see my SMS messages on my iPad. Surely that must exist. And it does. Uh, a thing called Mighty Text. You can go to mightytext.net. Uh, and it syncs with your Android phone and sends your texts anywhere. So it can send it to your, uh, to your PC or laptop, uh, or you can log in through iPad. And if you hit reply and send a message, it kind of sends it back to your phone and then out through um, normal text messaging. But I thought there was something interesting about uh, you know, technology and services being anywhere. This isn't just about having an app or, or having your phone do something. This is bringing together all different bits of technology and the coming to you uh, and where you happen to be at that moment and I thought it was a kind of a really nice place to to start simple that simple thing text messaging and since I installed it on, on the weekend I have it now on my computer desktop uh, and even though my phone might be in my pocket there's a text might pop up and just like, even a simple thing like replying to it on the keyboard and hitting send and away you go yes uh, it saves the hassle of reaching into your pocket and, and pulling your phone out middle class problems <laughs> my god you belong to a gym Matt I'm worried no, about your lack of activity. No, no. Does it show? <laughs> As you say, this is sort of genuine convergence. I mean, people were talking about the C word back in the... Uh, let, let me go back, back in time. It's about the mid-90s, I think. Mm. Everyone was talking about your computer being on your TV, which, which still no one particularly wants. Uh, uh, but now, you know, it is finally uh, 18 years after I wrote my first feature about it for Broadcast Magazine. You know, it's genuinely happening across the board and with, with greater, um, quicker and quicker across all platforms. Yeah, and I think things like Android, which is a kind of more open mobile platform, which now has... Uh, lots of people using it and bigger than bigger than iPhones uh, is more open and you can do these sorts of things. I think it's a danger for Apple actually. You know, they built closed systems which are really efficient and really high quality, but it stops you doing these little bits of things. And people want to have more control uh, over their phones or their technology or all their information. And I think that's one of the reasons why Android is probably on a bit of a leading edge. Okay, and finally this week there was controversy about the, uh, the colour of uh, Hugh Edwards' tie. Uh, a chap in the radio industry we hear, we hear uh, quite often, James Cridland, yes. turned up in the Daily Mail. Yeah, so um, James... Talking about this, this very topic. Yeah, so, so James Cridland runs Media UK, um, which is a great media website uh, kind of directory. And his tweets seem to keep being quoted in the Daily Mail, which sort of surprises him somewhat. I think they just like the idea that him as like Media UK commentator, they can kind of put that in. Uh, not one to say that the Daily Mail sometimes exaggerates uh, elements of their stories, uh, but they're, they're very good at picking and choosing uh, what to use. So he'd written a tweet saying something like, uh, oh, Hugh Ed- no black tie for Hugh Edwards. Interesting. And for him, it was just interesting on the uh, uh, when, when announced about Margaret Thatcher. Um, Daily Mail, they grouped that together with a how dare Hugh Edwards not wear a tie. And on the online article, they showed a picture of him wearing a pink tie. But oddly, he was also wearing a poppy, which maybe suggested this wasn't a current picture. Uh, and so he posted about this on, on, on Media UK as, as a little blog post. Uh, and 
a few people replied. Someone worked out that the photo was seven years old. So literally some um, poor intern at the mail probably had to go back and find the most disgustingly light tie that Hugh Edwards had ever, had ever worn. This article went a little bit viral as people retweeted it, including Hugh Edwards, which I thought was quite nice. Oh, perfect circle. Um, and then the picture has mysteriously disappeared uh, from the Daily Mail online now. Not only were male readers offended by what tie he was wearing, but they're thinking, my God, Hugh looks young. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Matt Deegan, thank you very much. Are you an aspiring journalist or writer? The Guardian International Development Journalism Competition is your chance to win an assignment to Africa, Asia or South America. You'll write for The Guardian about the global development issues that face the area you visit. All you need to do is submit a short essay on one of the 12 diverse themes. You can find all the information you need at guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. Enter now to win the work experience of a lifetime. Visit guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. The deadline is midnight on Sunday the 6th of May. Terms and conditions apply. And finally this week, I'm joined by The Guardian's acting TV editor, Nasheen Iqbal. Nasheen, how are you? I'm pretty good. Making pretty well. Debut. Lovely to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, it's big, uh, big news this week. It's the return of the most written about and least watched TV show, Mad Men. I'm kidding, of course. It's not that written about. And, in fact, quite a few people did watch it. But um, back for a sixth series, double header. What did you make of it? I actually didn't enjoy it that much. And I love Mad Men. I found it became a little bit of a parody of itself. Maybe because I was watching in HD. Because I haven't, maybe I haven't done that before. But it all looks a bit too hyper-real, a bit too, oh, I can see the beehives and the colours, and it's, yeah, it's a bit too much. I felt it didn't find its tone. It was a difficult watch. I kind of found myself admiring it, but not necessarily enjoying it. Yeah, but actually there were bits I didn't admire as well. I mean, I quite like the fact that Don didn't speak for 15 minutes, and his first words, I think, were Korea or Army. And I thought he might go through this whole preamble through death and discover something a bit more meaningful than they usually do. But no, it's just Tim not realising that that's always his jumping off point and everyone else does. I kind of think it suffers from the Vic and Bob syndrome, uh, which is, is not hugely well known beyond my head. But th- this is the syndrome that suggests that the sidekick always ends up being more interesting than the main event. So in Mad Men, all you really want to do is have a laugh with Roger Sterling until yeah. his imminent demise, probably. But, you know, and Don, I, I've kind of got a bit fed up with Don, really. You know, uh, there's only so much bad behaviour I can take. But what did you, I mean, there was a couple of scenes, I just, I mean, Betty's character, what did you, did you... Weird, I just thought it was some complete weirdness. That, am I allowed to talk about the scene? Should I talk about... Go for it. The, ...the rape joke scene with her husband, and he just seemed nonplussed by Betty suggesting that he'd go into the next room and rape a teenager, and it was just so weird. Like, the, the tone of it was bizarre. So has it gone too far? Should they have called it a day early, do you think? I mean, I look back on the first few series and it was kind of TV gold uh, and, you know, the whole thing about Don's dual identity and, uh, you know, it's it's fantastic stuff. But the danger is when these TV series go on for too long that the letter series, uh, I'm thinking of The Wire, for instance, another Guardian favourite, the final series almost kind of sullies your earlier memories, you know, and wish they'd just keep it, you know, keep it perfect. Yeah, maybe I'm doing the classic journalist thing, build it up, knock it down. Yeah, I love the first five series, now it's just rubbish. Um, So it's probably that. Um, No, I'm not saying it's rubbish either. I just, I found it a bit odd, this, this opening double bill. I'm sure they care what I think. 
So the viewing figures, only 58,000, which is, is down from about 100,000 for the last series and 350 when that was on BBC4, free to air. Uh, what, what do you think? Was, was that reflected in, in traffic on The Guardian's series blog, for instance, or is there still a sort of healthy, um, you know, devoted audience out there? It makes sense. It is. It does actually reflect. Um, I mean, our figures are healthy. Um, I mean, Mad Men, it has its niche audience and the fans are very, they're quite loyal and they will comment and they get very involved. And um, yeah, no, they, they were good. They were healthy. They weren't um, Russell Brown and Margaret Thatcher, but they were they were pretty decent. <laughs> and Peggy is the new Don. I mean, that's, that's not really sort of well. It's being telegraphed very, very uh, unsubtly, I suggest. She's even speaking like Don. Yeah, she's got Don's lines. Yeah, she has. And uh, yeah, I want to re- I want to root for Peggy. I want to really like her, but I think she's she's going to be fine morphing into this new hard-assed powered exec so yeah that's enough mad men but the big tv event of the coming week is of course the return of britain's got talent which will um presumably nasheen uh, pulverize bbc one's the voice into submission oh i do think so yeah but well, i think they're all f- dying a little bit but um total event tv is kind of where it's at so yeah, and you watch the whole thing through the, uh, the phenomenon of social media, is that right? I watch it entirely through Twitter. Uh, it's, it's more fun that way. You don't have to put up with the cringiness of watching the performances and you get all the jokes. Well, the first episode was actually rather good, I can reveal, if you've uh, not listened to this before Saturday. But with the, uh, one act almost moved me t- to tears. Uh, uh, and not because the first programme seemed to Real last for about tears. an hour. Yeah, almost, yeah. As I, snuck on my, as I snack, snacked on my Morrison's popcorn, which came free with every... Uh, Every seat in the press preview. Classy. Yes, indeed. Very classy. Always classy. Um, well, Nasheen, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests who were Mike Souter, Steve Ackerman, Trevor Dan, Matt Deegan, and Nasheen Iqbal. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our blog or our Facebook wall, or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.